Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. As we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. All right, well, we'll go ahead and get into our scripture reading. It is Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. We'll go ahead and stand for the, in honor of God's word. Romans 1. Verses 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from the heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would not be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty, penalty of their error. And just as they did this, or as, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, to those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, malice, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word gives us a very very stern warning of what happens whenever someone does not follow your commands and completely, totally repent and believe in your Son. Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that will feel the truth of your word. Lord, we pray that you will touch the lives of every person in here and and bring forth your 
illumination of your scripture to see that this is not my word, but yours. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts, and we worship you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, you guys can go ahead and be seated. Like I said, we're going to be doing something a little bit different these next two weeks. We're doing a part one and a part two. And um, part one of this series is the wickedness within the church. So that's what will be addressed today. Now, obviously, based on what I just read from our scripture reading in Romans, as well as where we are in 1 Corinthians, the whole underlying theme of this is immorality. Now, some of your Bibles may say immorality. Some of, it, some of them may say sexual immorality. But the word is the same. All immorality is that of the sexual type. Now, the word for, in the Greek, for immorality is pornea or pornios. And so I don't have to tell you what word we use today and where that root word comes from. It, it's kind of a blanket statement for all sexual immorality. It could be fornication. It could be adultery. It could be lesbianism. It could be homosexuality, transsexuality, prostitution, sodomy. It could be incest or even bestiality. And you might say, well, well, fornication, well, that's just something that happens before marriage, something that you do before you are married. And everybody does that these days, don't they? Well, clearly, in these scriptures that we've seen uh, and, and that we will continue to see today, that fornication is on the same level as the most sickening sexual immorality that we can think of. For God, it is all one level field whenever it comes to that specific sin. And no matter what we think of it, it should certainly be repented of. Now, wickedness is that sexual immorality. It, it, it's, that sin is exactly what it is. It is wickedness that should be repented of. Wickedness that our children should be warned of. There's grave dangers and grave consequences that come from these sorts of, uh, of, the, of sexual immorality, this type of sin. And the church of Corinth was both guilty of, of participating in it, but also tolerating in it. And we cannot tolerate it ourselves. Now remember, this part one, so this is the wickedness within the church. Next week, we'll have, we'll talk about a different kind of wickedness. But right now, we're talking about the church specifically. Now, because we are part, approaching this in a two-part series, this will be 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1, verse 1 through... I'm sorry. Verse 1 through 8. And so we'll go through that line by line. Um, and, uh, and, and then next week we'll break, we'll get into that next, uh, that next set of verses. Now, we are doing this for two reasons, or for three re reasons, really. First of all, we want to equip you, the family, with the apologetics that is needed. 
to, to understand what it is our faith is based on. We equip you so that you can equip your family to stand firm in Christ and His truths when faced with temptation to participate or even tolerate this wickedness. Because it's all around us. I don't think there's any denying it. We are doing this because there is an all-out assault on God's Word right now on the Word of God and His church. And the assault threatens how pastors can preach in the pulpit, but also it's an attack on Christian families and those families who believe and teach the truth of God's Word to their children. We, meaning Bright Star Bible Church, are a part of what's called the G3 Church Network. And it's a larger network of churches who, who think and believe that Scripture is above everything, that it, that, um, that it is the Word of God given to us to live our lives. It is, it is an instruction manual on how to live our lives. There are some churches who preach that way. There are some churches who do not. So this G3 Church, Bible ne- or church Network, um, they all think similarly about the Bible. And being part of that organization, they, something was brought to our attention. And, uh, and we, along with thousands of other churches this week and next, are going to be taking a stand to preach God's truth on sexual immorality. And it falls perfectly in line with our, with our text in 1 Corinthians. So it works out pretty perfectly. Um, so we'll be using that text along with others to declare God's truth of His creation because He is the one that states these facts, not us. Yesterday in Canada, something very interesting happened. A bill went into effect, and that bill was called Bill C-4. And this immediately made what, what they call conversion therapy of any kind, they made it illegal. And in fact, in the preamble of this bill, uh, the, they, they state this, that the idea of heterosexuality and there, there only being two genders is a myth. They actually use that word myth to define what God has created. Now, most likely, none of you guys have ever heard of this bill until now. Uh, and you may be asking, what does a bill in Canada have to do with us here in Tulsa, Oklahoma? And the answer to your question is, it has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with us because it is, is an assault on the Word of God. No matter where it happens, these things should rattle us to our bones. It was John Calvin who said, even a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. We have a duty, Christians. We have a duty to stand for God's truth and His Word whenever it is attacked. The second reason why this bill in Canada should matter to us is because in Christianity, there's not really borders. So, meaning... If a Christian is here and they're your next-door neighbor, they're just as much as a Christian if they're in China or in Canada. They're still your brothers or sisters in Christ. 
and their tribulations are your tribulations. Third is Canada is, I mean, statistically speaking, just a few, we are just a few years behind them whenever it comes to the progressive agenda and the legislation of it. So if we take a stand for truth on God's word now, we, we just might be able to prolong the takeover of this liberal agenda here in the United States in our own hometowns. But notice I said prolong. I said that. I didn't say destroy. I didn't say stop or defeat because we are in a losing battle with this world, for this world. The Bible teaches this. We are to preach and teach the truth until this world collapses in on itself, which it kind of seems like that's what's happening. You can call me a conspiracy theorist all I want, but I'm just going off of the word of God. Now, as I said before, Bill C-4 is a bill that completely outlaws conversion therapy. And when you do a Google search on this bill, you will find exactly that. Headlines of Canada outlaws conversion therapy. And when you think of conversion therapy, some of you may not even know what that is. Some of you may think of a, a, a camp that a parent sends their child to to help them cure this homosexuality idea of thought. You may think of some sort of Christian therapy or Christian counseling, and it is certainly those things. But upon reading the bill, you'll find that it's not only for those who receive compensation, but pastors and even parents fall under its jurisdiction. So I will bring this all together here in a second. The way they define conversion therapy in this bill is simply this, a practice. It's a practice, meaning even an attempt to treat or to cure a child's homosexuality, their confused gender identity or gender expression. In fact, it's, it's not only the attempt to treat or cure that is now illegal, but an attempt to repress or reduce these things, these behaviors, is now illegal, including their sexual behavior. Whatever that may mean, we're talking about children. But it could very well be one day your child, if we're in the not-too-distant future, uh, if we do not know how to navigate this, these waters. And Scripture tells us exactly how to do this. Last point on this. I tried to get this so that you can fit. You may not be able to, that you can see it. Um, and you may not be able to read it. But this top portion, that's the top portion that we just read. And uh, it's how they defined it. And this next portion uh, is talking about how, what, what, hap what comes from it whenever they are found guilty. Um, so, including by providing conversion therapy, to that person, anyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, that person is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for five years in Canada. This just happened. And by simply promoting or advertising, maybe telling a parent, hey, you might look into you know, reading these certain Bible verses to help your child out, 
even that alone could, be, could find you guilty of an indictable offense and liable to prison imprisonment for up to two years. In fact, there are many people who, there have been many people who study this law and who have commented on this very bill. And they say it's so vague that simply telling someone your opinion on the subject, even in a private conversation, could constitute and justify imprisonment. So, brothers and sisters, in one fell swoop, they have just technically outlawed evangelism in Canada. In order to evangelize, you have to, and, and, and tell someone the gospel, you have to first make them aware that they are a sinner. How do you do that if they, are in, if they fall in that LGBT group? You're now committing a crime and liable to spend up to two to five years in prison. Not jail, prison. In fact, if I stand up here and I read Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to you, I would be found guilty by these standards and would be in prison for up to two years. So in that case, Genesis, 2, or Genesis chapter 1, 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There are only two genders. That is the way God created it to be, and that's the way it will always be, no matter how you feel. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'm telling you as Christians, we've got to stand up. We've got to do something different. We have to preach the truth of the gospel, whether you're a preacher or teacher or not. Same goes for Genesis chapter 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I'm sure we all know someone, who we love even, who is a homosexual. But the truth is that they are living a lie. They have been fed a lie by the Antichrist establishment. You may think that I'm being political, I'm not being political. I'm being biblical. This is not about conservatives and liberals or Democrats and Republicans. It is about truth and lies, good and evil, Christ versus the Antichrist, which there is no competition, by the way. But to us, our daily lives, it feels that way feels like we're struggling. And the same goes for 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. We haven't gotten there yet, but we will. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's transsexuals, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The only bond that God recognizes, the only bond that God sees is the bond between a husband and a wife, one man and one woman. Everything else is sexual immorality. Now, I've even heard of Christians who claim to be biblical Christians who talk about having more than one wife, 
that's becoming popular. We have to take a stand. Now, as we read earlier in our scripture reading, Paul has addressed the various forms of sexual immorality in his letter to the Romans. He does this similarly in almost every epistle that he wrote, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is no different. Just as Pastor Michael preached on last week, uh, we immediately learn in verse 1 of chapter 5 that the issue being addressed is incest. Incest. I know that these are words that I've never even spoken to my children before. Uh, but here's the, here's, the, here's the reality of the issue, is that us as Christian parents are training and must train and teach our children to be Christian warriors who teach the truth as well. Maybe not now. Don't send them to school preaching the gospel and thinking they need to. I mean, certainly they can share it, but thinking that they are the ones who are equipped. They're not equipped yet. That comes with time and maturity and sanctification. But they need to be aware of these, of these issues. So verse 1a in chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Remember, if your Bible say immorality, it's the same thing, the same root word. Now, if you've all read ahead in 1 Corinthians, you'll know that there are multiple kinds of immorality happening within the church. It's not just this one that he addresses here, but he does address it first. And there's one thing that we've learned so far in our study of 1 Corinthians is that the order in which Paul gives, lays things out, it's important. It tells us something. What comes first? Why is this being addressed first? Most likely because this is the, the most dangerous for the entire church. And the reason why he does so, he comes, he comes and, and, and tells us there is a reason why he does it. Continuing on in verse 1, B, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Now, some of your translations may say pagans. Same thing. So Paul has yet to disclose at this point which sin he is addressing in verse 1. And he's building up to it by stating um, his disgust. Even the Gentiles are disgusted at this kind of sin. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that because he makes this clear distinction that this kind of immorality would, would be even deplorable to the Gentiles and the pagans. It's interesting because the Greeks were very open to their view of sex. And it was never just contained between husband and wife. It was often shared between friends, both male and female, singles, couples, groups, a very poisonous lifestyle, no doubt. Um, and if you remember back in our introduction to 1 Corinthians, the temple of Aphrodite, which housed hundreds of, quote, religious prostitutes, was right there in Corinth. These prostitutes were sought daily by the locals as well as people traveling through Corinth. We learned about it being an isthmus, and so that was kind of the, the land bridge that got one part of Greece to the other part of Greece. So for Paul to make a statement that even the Gentiles and the pagans looked down upon this kind of immorality was quite the statement. And in verse 
1c, Paul finally discloses what the sin is that is so deplorable. It's the very last part of verse 1, that someone has his father's wife. Now, it is most likely not talking about this man who is having relations with his actual mother, or else Paul would have just come out and said his mother. It's, it's interesting, though, because in the Greek, he doesn't actually use the word stepmother, which is uh, metruia, uh, for this word here either. But it's likely that he's using this language because it is similar to the Old Testament Hebrew text. Now, uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 7 through 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. It is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So here we see a clear distinction between a man's actual mother and the father's wife. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11, we see the punishment if found guilty of such a crime. If a man is, who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. A just punishment for, from a just and holy God. Let's continue on to verse 2. You have become arrogant. Now, this is something that we've heard Paul state before in his 1 Corinthian epistle. Back in chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Now some of you have become arrogant, as though I were not come, coming to you. So you see, their so-called wisdom, the, Corinthians, the Corinthian church, had become prideful and arrogant in their so-called wisdom. We, we know that the esteem in which they held orders, if you guys remember, Pastor Michael had spoke on this before, their orders, they, they held the people who could speak eloquently to a very, very high standard, which Paul addressed earlier in 1 Corinthians as foolishness. They also thought that they had the best leaders, and it caused division within their church over which leader was the greatest, to which Paul then, again, proclaimed was foolishness. And in early on in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them, you are not lacking in any gift. You're not lacking. So you can imagine that their arrogance of, oh, we have, we have, uh, we have people who speak in tongues. And that's, that's not gibberish. That's someone who can speak in another language who has never learned another language. They can be sent to, the, to these other countries or these other groups of people, and they can preach the gospel in a tongue that they don't actually know. They have we, have, we have prophets, and that doesn't mean fortune tellers. That means people who could preach the word of God without having it actually written out as the New Testament. They could preach by a God-given knowledge what Jesus taught and what the other apostles were teaching aside from what they were taught by Paul. They could teach that because it was divine revelation from, from, from God himself. And they could lead and preach the church, preach to the church. So you can imagine that their arrogance of how holy they are, very similar arrogance to the, the, the um, Pharisees, actually. 
It blinded them from seeing the wickedness that was happening right within their midst. So let's read on. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So instead of addressing this man and his sin, they were preoccupied with their own greatness, with their own eloquence. They should have been the opposite of arrogant, which is not humbleness, but Paul says should be mourning over this. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. As Pastor Michael taught us last week, the arrogance of sin and its acceptance is not the mark of a true repentant individual. This is not someone who has learned about their wretchedness and mourned over it, realizing that they are doomed without a Savior and and realizing their desperate need of a Savior. No, there was no mourning over this man's deplorable acts with his father's wife. In fact, they were quite the opposite. They tolerated it within their church. They should have been the follow, following the, G, the teachings of Jesus on how to practice church discipline, which is Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more of you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to, if, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, it's safe to say that they probably didn't do steps one through two. They probably, someone just went to Paul and Paul heard about this. If they were arrogant, then they most likely weren't even talking about his, his, uh, his sin, his issues that he was going on in his life. They were too, too con- concerned with their own piety. Now, the statement, as a Gentile or a collect, uh, tax collector, do you under, understand the weight of this statement? In that time, if your son had become a tax collector in those days, you would never speak to him again. He would lose all ties with the family, along with his inheritance, all because of the shame that he brings onto himself. And Gentiles were just the same, no contact, not even a good morning. So, this is quite the statement from Jesus. But we see here in the, in, in the, that the, the Corinthians, out of their own pride and arrogance, tolerated the man in his sin. Clearly, that was a problem, and, and we can learn from that problem. Verse 3, For I, on my part, although absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. This is the spiritual fatherhood role that that I spoke about last time I preached a couple weeks ago. He is exhorting them to see what he sees. This is a major issue that should be addressed immediately. Whether he is there or not, he has made his decision on the matter. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord, Jesus, our, our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, meaning when they are together, 
dealing with this every day, day in and day out, in person, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, meaning being justified to judge and condemn through his teaching and through his word. I, verse 5, I have decided to deliver, to deliver a such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's no denying that that's a pretty dark statement coming from Paul. But again, this is that fatherhood, that spiritual fatherhood role that we talked about. When someone comes in and threatens the well-being of your beloved children, you do not hesitate. And there's no doubt that Paul was saddened by the loss of this one individual, but that one who was clearly not a truly repentant individual was let go because of the risk of him leading others down the path of confusion and ultimately destruction. And Pastor Michael has had to do that before to, to, to pro protect his own flock, his own spiritual family. That is, his, that is his job of this church as well as the churches that he's, uh, that he's planted before. The problem is, in our Christian time, in our Christian church, we have too many Corinthians and not enough Pauls. We have too many people saying, I'm just going to mind my own business. I'm going to go back to being super holy. I'm going to be good and I'm going to be nice. And that's going to make me holy. And I'm just going to ignore everything that all these other people are doing in the church or teaching in the church. Now, what does he mean by this statement? Deliver to such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What could that possibly mean? Now, I hate to sound so redundant, but this again, even on the part of the man who has just been removed, this is a mark of spiritual fatherhood concerning Paul. This is discipline through love, believe it or not. Paul is praying that this man be left to the destruction of his own ways. That destruction will eventually cause him to hit rock bottom. And at this point, Paul knows that this man is so lost that only the Holy Spirit himself can break him down, humble him to the point that he sees the foolishness of his choices. Have any of you ever hit rock bottom? I, I have. I have. I felt it. I know what it feels like. I know many people who have hit rock bottom. And still, they seem to hit, it, hit rock bottom a couple times. Sometimes that's what it takes to humble ourselves and help us see our ways, the wickedness of our ways. Now, these next three verses, Paul takes his focus off the man and places them on his beloved children. And he does this in the most fatherly way. He offers a parable. I've done this before with my children. Whenever they've gotten in trouble with something or I'm trying to explain something, I'll break it down in a way that they can easily understand it. And these next three verses is something that every person, Jew or Gentile, could and should have been able to understand. 
verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Now, back in chapter 1, Paul told them, like I said, that they're not lacking in any spiritual gifts. This could possibly be what they had to boast about. They were arrogant and boastful. This is not good. Do not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So starting out, boastfulness represents leaven or, or yeast, which will eventually leaven the whole lump. If you know anything about leaven, biblically speaking, what they would do is whenever they, were, they would make dough that was leavened, they would roll the dough, and then they would take a little piece of that dough out, and then they would put it in water for the next time that they were making, they were making dough that would rise, uh, leaven bread. And so that yeast, that, the yeast that's in that one tiny lump in that water will sit over time. And it will become, it will become, uh, well, I'm, I've lost the word that I was trying to find. Um, it, it will basically spoil, ferment. That's the word I was looking for. It will ferment. Then whenever they're ready to bake a new, ba- a new lo- loaf of bread, they will take that fermented piece of dough and they put it in with the new dough that is unleavened and that will then leaven that bread and they work it through it. So all throughout Scripture, we see that leaven is used to represent something that spreads. And in most cases, most cases, it represents evil. Evil that spreads through what was once clean or pure, making it unclean or impure. Verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Now, there are so many parallels just here in this one verse, in verse 7. What happens whenever we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? First, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then we become a new creation, very similar, very similar to a new lump not resembling anything that the world looks like or what we looked like before. Clean out the old leaven so that, the, that, that you may be a new lump, just as you are unfact, in fact unleavened. We are, in fact, unleavened, meaning turn, repent from all the ways of the world, the things that you had done before, that you, before you came to know Christ. Maybe, maybe it was even after you said the prayer that you thought saved you. Maybe you had done things since then. Repent of those things. Turn away from them. Don't bring, them, don't bring those things with you to this new lump. And it's no different individually as it is as a church. One, it's, 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 it's the modern day version, or it's the old, old day version of our modern word of one, one rotten apple will spoil the whole bunch. It's the same thing, the same idea. In a church, whenever you have an individual who is leading people to confusion by their lives and it's not being addressed, then others will follow. Paul makes it clear through these passages that just tolerating sin within the church will unleaven the whole lump. And to my final point of verse 7, Paul 
always brings it back to the ministry of Christ, and he does so here. In Exodus 13, verse 3 through 5, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a pow- the powerful hand of the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day, in the month of Abib, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of Canaanite, of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, and Hivite, and the Jebusite, that he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall observe this rite in this month. So for Passover, for the for pulling for for pulling Israel out of the land of Egypt, this is now said to be a a a time that should be remembered. And they wouldn't eat leavened bread for for seven days. In Exodus 13, chapter 13, verse 6 through 7, For seven days you shall not eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in your in all your borders. You shall tell your sons on that day, it is because of the Lord, of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. With a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. For Christ is our Passover. It's right there in that verse. He has been sacrificed for us. It is because of what the Lord did for me that I came out of sin. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of sin. We may not be Israel who was brought out of Egypt, but we were certainly brought out of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ made us unleavened. That we would, why we would ever wish to be leavened again is beyond me. It's our, but it's our nature. It, we draw to it. We want it. We desire it. And I'm saddened to say that we love it. And we have to be aware of that. We dabble with it. We play with it to see how close we can get. The truth is, we are on a razor's edge, every single one of us. Every single one of us can tip on one side or the other at any time. You might sit there and think, I would never, ever commit these crazy atrocities that we're talking about with sexual immorality. Whatever it may be, whatever sin it may be. But... Whenever it comes to perfect storm, you have to be aware. You have to know what you, what you can do and what you can do to escape those things. What's your escape plan when those things, when the world offers you these things? This is how we have to teach the church. Not just preaching, not just teaching, but application of God's word. And, and when I say application, I don't mean life application like 
I, I don't know, some of the other stuff that we hear at other, at other churches. Don't even want to get into that. I'm talking about applying yourself to be one of God's holy disciples that walks, talks, and teaches the word of God. And verse 8, Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of certainty and truth. Christians, this is what it's all about. Our lives should be a celebration of what Christ did for us on that cross. And we don't celebrate in the ways that the world does. No, we celebrate the way we are called to celebrate. Last one. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present yourself as your, your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of, of what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, how do we celebrate? We worship. We worship in a way that is acceptable to Him, in song, in our life, in our bodies, as holy, living sacrifices. We do not allow the world to conform us, but we've done that. We've allowed that to happen in so many churches. They, they, they tell us what the definition of marriage is. They define what gender is. And they tell us what is good and what is not. They know nothing. They are foolish in the light of the wisdom of Almighty God. As I said before, brothers and sisters, we are surrounded by wickedness. We pulled our children out of public school for this very reason. And we were talking to some friends from church the other night that found out that they're going into their public school, which is a great school, and hearing their teacher asking them what their gender pronouns are. That's happening right here. That's not in California or New York. We are surrounded by wickedness. And that very wickedness is clawing and clamoring to get its way into the walls of the church. And in many cases, it has. We cannot let that happen. We cannot falter in this little church. Whether we stay little or we, or we grow, we cannot falter on that point. As Pastor Michael has said many times, the church is a pillar of truth. It must have strong walls and columns to withstand the wickedness that seeks to destroy it. And they do seek to destroy it. And that all starts with a foundation built on Christ and His Word. Let's pray.